Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in History podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I will be in dialogue with Peter Williamson regarding his book, Duce, The Contradictions of Power, The Political Leadership of Benito Mussolini, published in London by Hearst and Company 2023. The book is also published in North America by Oxford University Press. Dr. Peter Williamson is an independent researcher. Peter, it's my blessing to be in dialogue with you today. No, my, my pleasure, Ari. Yeah, absolutely. Kindly, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you'd become as an adult? Right. I, I was born uh, in Edinburgh, went to, to school there, and then uh, went to Edinburgh University, where I ended up studying politics. Um and kind of, although it wasn't my original intention, grew in love with the subject that seemed to click with me, politics, political science. Uh, and then I went on to do a PhD at the University of, of Aberdeen. Um, and, and that was really quite a formative um, academic event because for the first time I was really having to develop ideas of my own rather than repeat ideas of others for undergraduate exams and deal with a lot of material. So the three, three and a half years I spent in it was, was for me a major, major development. It was quite an interesting uh, PhD because it covered three different elements. One was Catholic and nationalist economic and social theory. Then it had a section part on Mussolini's Italy um, and Salazar's Portugal. And then it ended up with a third part on contemporary political economy of, of Britain. 
And that was all under the heading of corporatism, which when I was doing that work um, in the 1970s and 80s, 1980s, was, was a big idea in political, political science. And um, then I went into teaching politics, but graduated towards um, public policy, public management um, in, in the mid-1980s. And actually ended up uh, with a job at the medical school leading on a health policy and management. And then in a sort of one of these unplanned ways, I ended up um, being recruited into the National Health Service as a planning as a, a strategy director, uh, which I spent many years in um, and also worked uh, in, in the government here. On, on health policy. And then after what seemed like too many years, I, I retired and um, immediately I retired one day and the next day I started writing this book. <laughs> Without necessarily having a, a, clear, um, a clear idea of how it was going to develop, certainly when I started. So that's that, that's me, that's a sort of background. Um, the thing I, I would add, though, is that having taught management uh, and then been a sort of manager director, it gave me a certain insight into how people manage things, and that was applicable to Mussolini. Um, so I think that kind of additional background, not just a pure history background, if you like, was helpful in, in developing the ideas and themes of the book. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? That's a, that's a good question. Um, I'd, although I'd given up academic work for quite a number of years, I'd always retained an interest in Mussolini. I'm not entirely sure why I'd studied him. Biographies would come out, studies of fascism would come out, and I'd always buy them and, and read them. Um, and I suppose, although there was a lot of depth to many of these studies of Mussolini, at the end of the day, I kind of thought, well, there, there's something missing uh, in that. Particularly when you put them all together, there was um, quite different presentations of Mussolini. There was what was pretty popular in Anglo-US history until the mid-90s, this idea that he was a, a, a political manipulator, almost a kind of charlatan, um, who didn't necessarily have much substance uh, to him. But at the same time, there were arguments that actually he was a much more positive leader, much more offender in the sense that he was a benevolent dictator. Yes, he got rid of democracy in Italy, or he and the fascists got rid of democracy in Italy, but he then achieved many positive benefits for Italy. So that seemed to stand in contrast. And then there were arguments that he was, he was pretty pragmatic, contingent. He dealt with issues as they arose, but then there were arguments that he was a really strong ideologue who had a, a sort of fascist vision, particularly based around international expansion. He had he had that vision to, to take forward and that 
was in a sense what was driving him and the fascists. And then there were arguments, writer Richard Bosworth would argue that there was a lot of continuity between what Mussolini did and what had come before under the, the so-called liberal Italy after it was unified in, in 1861. Now, to some extent, these couldn't all be right, all these different... And I suppose that's all... But at the end of the day, I began to get to the point where I was thinking, to some extent, they were all right, but only when you kind of put them together and sorted out some of the rough edges, the contradictions, did you get that overall picture of, of what Mussolini as, as a political leader represented. What are the primary themes in your book? What story does your book tell? I think that the primary story is about how Mussolini, on the one hand, was very effective. He was very effective at getting hold of power and holding on to it. But then having done that, partly through his own weaknesses, if you like, but also the circumstances he found himself in, he was unable to use that power to achieve the aims he wished. And actually, um, a lot of what he set out to do, not completely by any means, but to a significant degree, he failed to, to achieve. And that was down to his obsession with protecting his own position, which probably at the end of the day took priority in a lot of his decision-making. And we may come on to aspects of, of that in our discussion. But also, I think he didn't really understand what leadership was about. He'd had no experience. He'd effectively been a journalist, a bit of a, a political in a big organization. He'd never graduated the ranks of government to the to the uh, view of what was about. Partly that was because through upon nineteenth century philosophy, Nietzsche, George Sorrell, Vil Vilfredo Pareto a host who, in his mind, suggested that effective leadership was about power, the will to power, was about psychology, was about force where necessary, but wasn't really ever about going with people, engaging people, that somehow himself as a sort of super leader, an omnicompetent leader, could direct things from above. And up to a point, he could, but there were major limitations to that. What were the influences that shaped Benito Mussolini's political thinking? What was his political philosophy? There were, Mussolini was influenced by a wide range of, of sources in the early part of the 20th century, after a short time as a school teacher, he ended up in Switzerland. And at that time, he 
became close to the Italian section of the Socialist Party uh, in Switzerland and started doing some uh, writing, organizing for them. And there were a range of, of influences on it. The first one, I think it was Wilfredo Pareto, um, who he came across in a short course he studied at Lausanne University, who what Mussolini took out of it was that there was never any chance of a real democracy. Elites would always take control. The elites might change, but the elites would always be in charge. As may have already mentioned, Nietzsche again was a significant influence upon his thinking, um, particularly this idea of will to power that somehow you could be a super leader, you could rise to the top through your own force, your own willpower. Um, and that, again, repeating what I've already said, was, was part of it. It was about power. He was also influenced um, slightly later on by the uh, syndicalists, particularly George Sorrell, who advocated the use of violence in politics, and he was attracted to violence as, as a means of achieving political power, driving political, political power. So he picked up a lot of that 19th century and enlightenment thinking, um, which was a slight hard-carrying member of the Socialist Party at the time. Um, and yet, actually, if you go through his writings at that time in depth, there's not much of a socialist vision to change revolution, and he was willing to be engaged with socialism to take that forward, but you never quite got the impression that he had a vision of a socialist society at the end of, of what he would see as, as a revolution. Um, and he, would, he was an elitist. He saw society, again, in contrast to sort of socialist thinking, as hierarchically organised, that's how it should be, that's how it should function. There was always a hierarchy. Um, and in that sense, that's what was driving it. idea of elite control, therefore no need for democracy. Democracy was um, almost against the nature of, of society, this idea of equality, of everybody having one vote. And towards the end of the 1900s, that decade, he became a sort of nationalist, much more nationalist inclined. It, it was a bit of a mixed picture, a bit of a mixed journey of, of of discovery almost, his initial nationalism was very much based on a cultural idea that Italy had been a great country, had somehow lost out under democracy and the current governing elite, but could recapture that. But that, as I say, started off not really as an imperialistic view, but much more a heritage cultural view of of Italy and therefore of Italian nationalism. What were the similarities and differences between Adolf Hitler's consolidation of power 
in Germany and Benito Mussolini's consolidation of power in Italy. I think that one of the principal differences was that Hitler and the Nazis achieved their dictatorship very quickly within Germany and were more violent in doing it than the fascists ever were in Italy. Fascism had its violent side, was no escaping that, but it was never anything like one found in, in Hitler's Germany. The second thing which I think is important, Mussolini was always cautious. He'd come to power in some ways backed by fascist violence squads, but he'd also, at the end of the day, when he became prime minister, had a sort of informal agreement with Italy's political, economic, social elites. And he depended on that, and he certainly saw his dependence on that throughout his time in power to secure his position. And that meant that he was always somewhat cautious that if he took the wrong direction, the wrong decision, the elites would somehow abandon him, become more difficult, become a, become a source of, of opposition. Whereas Hitler was just completely ruthless. Um, I would say, on balance, Mussolini was, 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 was cautious because he didn't feel he, he had that concrete, solid basis of power automatically from those with influence and power in, in Italy. How, if at all, was Benito Mussolini's personal and interpersonal relationship with Adolf Hitler different from other allies of Hitler, such as Vidkun Quisling, Ayan Antonescu, Anti Pavlich, or others? The, the, the relationship which, which developed in the 30s, Hitler, if he had heroes, possibly in the, the 1920s, saw Mussolini as some sort of political hero and tried on a number of occasions to communicate with Mussolini, who at that point disregarded him. But into the early 1930s, Mussolini began to realise either he was a kindred spirit, and certainly when Hitler took power, he was a potential ally. Here is someone in charge of a country who could support, work with him and indeed Italy to achieve international expansion. Mussolini in the 1920s had dabbled in ideas of, of international expansion, particularly I think two areas were Yugoslavia and latterly uh, Ethiopia, but realised that Italy didn't necessarily have the military wherewithal to achieve it. So the alliance with Hitler was was attractive. However, the alliance with Hitler also had dangers attached to it. Firstly, that Hitler would become, as he indeed, indeed did, become the principal leader of fascism uh, in, in Europe. Um, and therefore, slightly sidelined Mussolini, who wanted to see himself as a great international as well as national leader. 
He was also uncertain about Hitler's intention, particularly when Hitler moved into Austria because Austria was now up against the Italian border. He was always concerned that that northeastern area, the Alta Adige, was vulnerable to German military um, a German military threat. And finally, I don't think he, in one way, ever developed a personal relationship. But there was always a suspicion in the, the relationship between him and and Hitler. So I think that that was a very important relationship, certainly in the 1930s for Mussolini, but one that caused him great difficulty because, as I say, at the end of the day, Hitler clearly was in charge of a much more powerful country and was in, therefore always a potential threat. But also, I think, on a personal level, the, the relationship was in, in many ways contrived and superficial. They were never that, that close. Although I should add that, that that reflects Mussolini. He was never good politically with anybody in developing kind of close relationships that that added more than the sum of the parts, if you want. What new perspectives are presented in your book regarding Margarita Sarfati? Margarita Sarfati was um, a socialist who met Benito Mussolini in 1908. And they, they, well, for one thing, they became lovers. Um, she at the time, like Mussolini, was was a, a socialist, um, and her significant contribution was to become one of the earliest formulators of propaganda ideas about myths about Mussolini as a leader. And in nineteen twenty five, wrote a life of Benito Mussolini which was interestingly published in London first and the, the following year uh, in Italy because it had to be edited to uh, remove some of the potential signposts about the relationship so Mussolini's wife, Rachele, wouldn't, wouldn't find, find out or wouldn't certainly be so explicit um, in, in Italy. But she actually did a lot to craft the original um, cult of the Duce that became an important part of, of Mussolini's uh, leadership. Interestingly, Sarfati was Jewish and in some ways, sadly, given that she worked for him and I think contributed positively to his political rise, left Italy in, in 1938 and uh, went, to, went to Argentina, although she did return um, to Italy after the war in 1947. On page 128, you write as follows, the nature of the scale, content, and basis of Mussolini's authority, the possibility that his right to lead and how he led was something that even a, in a dictatorship, Italians voluntarily accepted and consented to, requires detailed examination as a potentially very significant aspect of his leadership. There were no independent opinion surveys of the public during the Ventennio to supply answers. However, 
Mussolini's regime undertook extensive surveillance of the public, and reviews of the reports available provide considerable insight into public opinion. The surveillance was not just concerned with those actively opposing their regime. Especially in later years, Mussolini and the authorities were anxious to understand what Italians were thinking and to identify potential sources of discontent with the Duce, the regime, and its policies. Of course, the reports were refracted in the perceptions of the regime's agents and performers, but those who have reviewed them see them as a valid representation of the views that people held about Mussolini and the regime, letters and diaries written by Italians during Mussolini's rule, contemporaneous observations by a variety of writers, and interviews conducted with individuals in the years after fascism add further shade and depth to the content of official reports. Can you say more about this? I think one, one of the first things, and, and, and particularly latterly, there was an obsession with public opinion, what people thought about the regime. And I think that points to a certain insecurity. Lini always a concern that things could go wrong. And indeed, just stepping down another route quickly on this, Mussolini had suffered political setbacks. Um he was expelled from the Socialist Party uh, in 1914 because of his support for Italian intervention in the First World War. He had had to resign from the executive of the fascist movement in 1920 because he was regarded as too conventional a politician, too close to socialism, too much of a, an ordinary regular politician rather than a sort of activist fascist. And in 1924, following the kidnap and, and murder of the socialist deputy Giacomo Matteotti, for a while he didn't have support. And Throughout that period from, let's say, about 1919 to 1925, there'd always been people who thought he wasn't really, or in fascist circles, there was the thought that he wasn't really the leader they, they wanted. Um, so he always felt this in insecurity. In um, and I think, therefore, he was always checking, have I got backing, have I got support? And part of that was public support. And what the surveillance revealed was, among a section, we don't know how big that section was, that people came to see in him leadership strengths. Um, people almost, Italians almost had a faith in him that he was the leader who could fix any, any problem. How widespread, as I say, that is, we don't know. We don't have the surveys to march, match it. But it wasn't universal. It wasn't universal in two senses. There was also people who hated Mussolini, particularly working class. The fascists had attacked working class organisations on the road to power, had attacked working class areas. So there were 
parts of Italy who were equally against them. The other thing which I think is important is that while people had faith, it was not necessarily always a sort of unconditional faith uh, in him. I think people recognised that things didn't always go as well as the propaganda suggested it was. But nonetheless, I would say a lot of people thought he was making Italy great, he was improving the country, um, and had certain political skills that others didn't have. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy, and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. On page 210, there's another quote I'd be curious to ask you about. Yeah. You write as follows. Mussolini's conception of social intervention was not confined to welfare provision. Intervention into the social sphere sought to bring about from a fascist perspective desirable social changes that would otherwise not have happened draw Italians closer to the regime and the state and encourage changes in people's outlooks, which would help to facilitate the mobilization of the population behind fascist projects. In this sense, Mussolini was not in favor of a small state, but saw a significant and often invasive role for the state in the personal employment and leisure activities of Italians. Some of the interventions, such as offering travel subsidies for seaside outings or providing sports facilities, can be seen as relatively benign, but all interventions had motivations beyond simply their own inherent quality. Thus, assistance for the unemployed to find work also entailed other considerations, such as controlling the risk of worker unrest and having available cheap labor for, for prestige projects. Increasing the size of families was linked to achieving increases to the available number who could be deployed in the military. Together, these different social interventions saw a major extension of the fascist state into the lives of Italians. The state was not acting simply from a position of munificence, but to establish dependence and control by influencing and limiting the choices open to the Italian people. The aim was to change the way people behaved socially in line with fascist aspirations, although often intentions became confused. Can you expand on this observation? Yes. Mussolini was engaged in what is often called an anthropological revolution. He wanted to reform Italians create new Italian men and new Italian women. 
and that essentially was focused upon Italy becoming more powerful militarily. He wanted Italians to become more warlike, more aggressive, um, and his hope was that through various interventions, people would be drawn into the regime and would therefore be open to being mobilised behind his fascist project. So there were a number, take, I'll take one example, was his view, probably a distorted view, was that military prowess for a country was based on having a large population who would be able to join the military and fight for the country. Um, in that sense, it was a slightly outdated vision, but certainly one that he held strongly. So there were major initiatives to increase the birth rate through incentives, control and employment. Public employment was only open to married people. There was a tax on bachelors. There were medals for having large families. It never it never worked. The the birth rate under the fascists under the fascists continued to to have its downward decline. Um, and I think the interesting side to this was that if you read some of what he was saying about Italians, he had terrible disdain for Italians. He called them a race of sheep. He called them lazy. He said they had to be beaten into action. Um, he didn't see them as requiring much in the way of material benefits that they could survive on, on little. So he had this rather odd perspective. And the result was that he kind of never found a way to properly engage with them. Um, to, And that may say, oh, sound odd alongside the fact that people had faith in him, but the regime wasn't able to draw people into supporting. And that was, again, I think one of the important lessons that comes out of the book, that although, keep repeating this point, people had faith in them, there was a definite limit to the extent that people were going to follow, and particularly as regards war, as regards alliance with with uh, Nazi Germany. And that was, for him, a great source of, of frustration. Um, and in his later years, he, he complained a lot about the failure of Italians to join his project. Um, and he blamed the Italians. His line was, it wasn't fascism that had failed the Italians, it was Italians who'd failed, failed fascism. In what ways does your study of Benito Mussolini differ from previous research on him? The main... To, to answer that question, maybe go back. I, as I said earlier, felt that while the, there was a lot of richness in existing studies of Mussolini, there was something that didn't kind of smooth out some of the contradictory sides to him, which, of course, was part of his persona. He, co he con 
he created different sides to him, which helped him sustain himself in, in power. And therefore, what, what I did in writing the book, I thought, right, I'm not going in with a particular line. Uh, writing the book was almost an exploration. And what I tried to do was reconcile some of the seeming conflicts and contradictions that he displayed. So, take, take, take an example. He rested his leadership to a very large extent on being an omnicompetent leader. And to perform that and to be that omnicompetent leader, he didn't ever really particularly wish to be seen to be taking advice. The consequence of which was, as a leader, he became detached. I won't say detached from reality, but certainly detached from a lot of things that were going on, um, a lot of solutions that might have been available to him. Um, and that meant he was he was much less effective. Another kind of contradiction was that he wanted to pursue, as we've been talking about this, fascist revolution. But at the same time, he was concerned not to destabilise the existing structures of power in Italy. And therefore, a lot of what he tried to do was to pursue change, but often in a in a in almost in a kind of light touch way, or a symbolic way, giving the appearance of change, but not necessarily following through on it. And therefore, as I say, what what you end up with is someone who has, in one sense, very strong dictatorial power within government but is unable then to realise his, his ambitions for fascism and for fascist Italy. What new perspectives are presented in your book regarding Achille Starace? I think Achille Starace was secretary of the fascist party for much of the 1930s. And I think what, what Starace in some senses is regarded as a bit of a, a lightweight, a buffoon, not a very serious politician. But in some ways he was an ideal lightning rod for Mussolini because when things did not go particularly well, the blame was attached to the party. The blame was attached to Starace, not to, to Mussolini. And therefore, what Mussolini was doing was he was, A, not having people around him who were necessarily too powerful. And Starace was certainly very obedient to Mussolini, but was never going to be a threat to him. But at the same time, a lot of what Starace did and pursued, so for example, he changed Italian language in the way of getting rid of anglicised words. So football became cultural, etc., um, etc. Et he also suggested that 
Italians and particularly fascist party members shouldn't drink coffee. So he created a rather sort of artificial form of fascism, what I call a pseudo-fascism. And to some degree, that actually Mussolini because it wasn't ever really seeing the issue. It wasn't necessarily going to lead to too much instability. A lot of people didn't like the idea of not being uh, asked to drink coffee or give up on handshakes and always give the, the fascist salute and so on and so forth. But it, you know, as I say, it created a pseudo-fascism, which maybe was more comfortable for Mussolini. He didn't have to push the, push the, the issue too far and therefore experience instability, which might threaten his position. There's another quote I'd be curious to ask you about. Mm -hmm. On page 183, you write as follows. Mussolini's rhetoric around the economy of a revolutionary third way proved noticeably hollow. In many respects, he took a conservative approach to the economy, dampening it down through keeping the size of the state constrained as his economic supporters wished. On top of this were many interventions, such as the Quota Noventa and the Battle for the Grain, which were underpinned by overt political aims that permeated his economic aims. Where these led to disruptions, compensating interventions and concessions were put in place for those economic interests to whom he felt it necessary to respond those economic interests also benefited from the corporatist structures that held down wages. The wider corporatist structures, which were given few concrete responsibilities, had a minimal impact on the economy beyond wages, but did offer an opportunity to present a more radical picture of the fascist economy than its conservative reality. Can you expand on this observation? Yeah, it Mussolini when he came to power, was influenced by current economic thinking to a significant extent. And that was a, a sort of fairly basic liberal economic view that the state shouldn't have a major role and matters should be left to the market. However, of course... Mussolini had ambitions um, and did want to intervene in, in the market. And when he did so, he often, in respect of, of industry and to some extent agriculture as well, well offered compensating um, payments, tax relief, whatever it happened to be, to keep, keep that connection with powerful economic interests. Sound. The result was that actually a common image of Mussolini is that he was a major economic interventionist. It's not actually true. I'll come back to some of the, the exceptions to that. So the proportion of public expenditure from when he came on to power stayed at or even sometimes below until the mid-1930s when it began to go up, but it began to go up, A, because of the Ethiopian war, which took up about 20% of public expenditure uh, over the P 
period 1935 to 1940. And in one sense, the state didn't expand. The major intervention that Mussolini took early on was, in effect, getting rid of free trade unions, which was largely achieved in by 1926. So, in effect, you had trade unions that were, were under government control, and that allowed a number of wage cuts subsequently to be uh, undertaken. And that kind of deflated the economy. Again, repeat, they were often compensating for, for industry, compensating uh, benefits coming in their direction. But that was an important part of, of his policy. He also, at the same time, had set the value of the lira in international terms at a high level, much higher than anybody else thought it would be. He did it for political reasons, to show the strength of Italy. It had a strong currency. But the consequence was that it actually deflated the economy it uh, reduced demand because people were having to pay more for, for imported imported goods. And that deflation had quite an impact after actually what quite a good period in the first few years when the economy grew reasonably well under, under a sort of liberal. That deflation of the economy, um, I would say, held, held, held it back. And even after the Wall Street crash in 1929, the Italian government was slow to move in to offer compensating relief to help the economy. Um, again, there was this view, all, all that's required is a high exchange rate and wage control, reducing wages. However, the banks in Italy began in 1930, really began to suffer because they were what called joint banks. They invested in companies. The companies weren't earning the income, therefore the loans were at risk. And in 1931, major intervention with the creation of the Instituto per la Reconstruzione Industriale was what we call ERI, was created. And it took over shares in large swathes of the Italian economy to keep it afloat. But even then, all it was doing was, in effect, funding industry, giving it financial security. It wasn't taking over the running of the businesses, which more or less carried on as usual. So again, Mussolini was protecting the autonomy of private business while putting uh, a lot of uh, funds in, in, their, in their direction. And a couple of things to say about that. One, he allowed technicians, financial experts, if you like, industrial experts to run it. He, he stepped back from the running of that. And often in history, it's seen as one of the regime's successes. And in fact, the Institute was only closed down in Italy in 2002. So there was that side to it. It was effective, but it wasn't effective because of Mussolini. The other thing was 
But as the economy improved in the later 30s, Erie gave up its shareholding in many companies that kind of withdrew. But it continued to hold pretty substantial holdings in a lot of industries. These industries were iron ore, steel manufacture, armaments. And what Mussolini hoped was by having state ownership, that would form a basis for him to direct the economy, direct industry towards military ends. So military-focused industries stayed part of that public um, public funding, public sort of semi-public ownership right up until up until the war. But I should add, just because he had no plan, economic plan for mobilization worth its name, um, that ownership really never offered any effective control. Industry decided itself in many ways what it, what it was going to do. On page 184, you write as follows. Mussolini's instincts, like those of fascism's economic supporters, were for a small economic state, but the impact of the world depression eventually forced his hand to extend intervention considerably to prevent collapse of the banking sector. His more interventionist state continued as before to operate through arrangements where private firms and landowners were able to enjoy extensive self-regulation and opportunities for private gain. IRI may have afforded the state with a significant share in the ownership of private firms, but like other interventionist arrangements such as supporting cartels, the state's influence was limited to bailing out and supporting industry and leaving it, often successfully to develop and modernize for its own purposes. Once the worst of the crisis was over, however, he did not contract the state, but reorientated it to pursue military expansion. The resultant increasing in spending was not unwelcome in industrial circles where it boosted demand, at least in some sectors. However, while industry did modernize and develop, a hands-off approach would adversely affect the buildup of military capacity. Throughout the regime, Mussolini dampened down private consumption in the economy through control of wages and specific policy choices. This fitted with his notions of fascist sacrifice. It was not, however, part of an effective strategy to free up resources for investment to develop the economy in the longer term. Low demand discouraged investment for domestic markets, while other policies often mitigated against investment. This was most obvious in agriculture, where policy failed to realize reforms that would boost capital accumulation and increase productivity. The reliance on cheap labor to undertake public works similarly did little to promote capital investment in public works. Can you say more about this? Yes. Mussolini had economic aims. What he never developed, I think, was a vision, a plan, call it what you will, on how to develop the Italian economy, what was required for it to move forward. 
And what therefore was happening during the regime was that his model was based on low wages, not encouraging domestic demand. So actually that didn't help industrial development. A range of public works, which as the quote you've just read states, was about cheap labour rather than innovation. And a lot of public works ended up going into public buildings, which one can still see around Italy, which demonstrated something positive about the regime, had a political age, new buildings, large grand buildings like the central station in Milan, but were not focused upon actually investing in the productive and particularly the potentially productive parts of of the Italian economy. And two consequences. Productivity did not increase as much as it did in other countries. There was low productivity growth under, under fascism. The second thing was that the potential of the economy, given its difficulties with productivity, were much less. And by the time Italy entered the Second World War in June 1940, it was going as fast as it could. Most countries, when they enter a war, their economy expands. The Italian economy didn't expand. It didn't have the potential to grow. And that was one, if only one, of of the weaknesses of Italy's war effort uh, from 1940 to 1943. Therefore, some historians look back on the fascist era as a kind of economic lost opportunity. Uh, when there were, despite the difficult international economic conditions, there were opportunities. So industry did develop, and to some extent, despite his economic policies, parts of Italian industry did quite well in the 1930s. But I suppose the argument always is they could have done done better. Agriculture was and a bit of a tradition in Italy was kind of left a bit to its own devices. There wasn't that much investment, particularly in infrastructure in the south of the country, that would have encouraged more productive uh, productive agricultural activities. In what ways, if any, was Benito Mussolini a quote unquote conservative? in the contemporary sense, meaning, and understanding of the term. What were the similarities and differences between quote-unquote conservatism and fascism? From from the outset, there were two sides to Mussolini. One was a picture, a presentation of radical change. At the same time, as wishing to keep the existing social order pretty much intact. In fact, probably benefited the existing social order. So in one sense, Mussolini was a conservative. I've said that in some respects, he operated what you might just call a conservative clampdown, which was keeping wages low, keeping 
worker and less uh, out uh, out of the way. But at the same time as he was doing that, and you could say, well, yes, that's him as a sort of conservative clampdown. He was pursuing radical, maybe quote-unquote radical, fascist ambitions. And in that sense, he was almost pursuing two separate strategies, the conservative strategy and the radical strategy. And in a way, much of his role was trying to balance the two, to, to try and bring the two together, not always with, with a lot of, of success. So in that sense, he was, I think, quite different from Hitler, who was much more forceful in pursuing his vision of what the Third Reich should look like, should be, should embody. Um, but overall, he maintained quite, a, I think, a rigid conservative society. He created an order, a social order, or sustained, maybe a better way of putting it, a social order, which aligned him with conservatives, not just conservatives under fascism, but actually was largely what most of the conservative politicians had pursued prior to the fascist coming power in 1922. And so there is an element of continuity. However, he did it in a much more um, authoritarian way than had happened prior to 1922. What new perspectives are presented in this book regarding Galeazzo Ciano? Yeah, Ciano, um, I think Ciano is an interesting um, character, largely because it was assumed that he would be Mussolini's successor um, at some point, although Mussolini was wanted he to continue to appear youthful and therefore was unhappy about discussions about who was going to succeed him. Shano had a meteoric rise partly because he married Mussolini's daughter. So he was Mussolini's son-in-law. And having gone from a diplomatic job, was put in charge of propaganda and he, he subsequently became a foreign minister at that influential period running up to the, to the Second World War. Shano, in some ways, I won't say was besotted by Mussolini, but held him in very high regard. But what I think emerges is that to some degree, even having that family relationship, even holding him in high regard, his influence, Shano's influence, was not very significant, particularly over the big decisions. And I think what's, what's revealed in the book is how Shano, despite in some senses having a lot going for him, was much like any other leader under Mussolini, mainly very much at a lower level, second, not having Nestle a great deal of, of influence. And of course, the denouement to that was that when the Fascist Grand Council voted to 
curtail Mussolini. Say they voted to to get rid of him, but in July nineteen forty three, when they voted, Ciano voted was one of the people who voted for it, and as a result, in the after the fall of Mussolini's government and the establishment of the Social Republic under Mussolini, which was really just a puppet regime of of, of the Germans, Ciano was captured and and shot, um, which showed a, to me showed a quite a ruthless side to to Mussolini, um, and certainly put a strain on his relations with with his daughter. Can you comment on Benito Mussolini's managerial style? How did he approach decision-making within his cabinet and in relation to the Italian government's bureaucracy? Mussolini, in the years from 1922 to 1925, maybe 26, consolidated a personal dictatorship. At the end of 1925, law was changed, which in summary made the prime minister no longer accountable to parliament. Accountable still to the monarch, um, but certainly not accountable to parliament. And he'd done a lot to increase central powers, particularly through police. He had a major involvement with the policing of the country, which helped to consolidate his personal position of power. The other side to that, which is is important, is that most fascist leaders were willing to go along with that. They saw him as this omnicompetent, this brilliant leader, um, particularly in the wake of the Matteotti crisis, the murder of Giacomo Matteotti. Um, to kind of save fascism, they had to encourage, develop, promote the power of Mussolini as a leader, which they did. The consequence of that was that all fascist leaders, by giving recognition to the cult of Mussolini, by recognising or acknowledging his superior leadership abilities, put themselves at a lower level, they were continually deferring to his apparent genius as, as a leader. But Mussolini never, maybe strangely, never exploited that, never say, said to himself, I, I have a lot of loyal people who are willing to support me. His managerial style as prime minister was one of extreme control. He controlled everything. He also was pretty suspicious of his colleagues and kept moving them around posts and particularly if they seemed to be rising too much politically as happened to Italo Balbo um, who had recognition for his transatlantic flights. He was dismissed from the air ministry and made governor general of Libya kind of put out of put out the way. So Mussolini had this obsessive control um, which became self-defeating because he was actually trying to manage too much and he, he in a sense, overburned himself by this desire from, for, for control. 
at the same time, as I was saying earlier on in our, our interview, he had a strange view um, of how government would work. He seemed to believe in the perfection of any bureaucracy, that if he took a decision, somehow it would work its way down the system and pop out at the end just as it as he intended it. Um, he seemed to almost have a military view that there was some military discipline in government bureaucracies that would would somehow achieve the, the desired results. And he also, I mean, again, strangely, became involved in, in almost irrelevant details, even when he was fighting the, the war and planning in charge of Italy's military campaign in the Second World War. He was getting involved in promotions of relatively junior officers, the supply of cheese to the army, all sorts of things that um, were... <laughs> no consequence to the overall military military strategy. And a lot of that rested, I think, on, on a sort of distrust. I think ultimately he was distrustful of, of people. But also, if you are playing the part of the super leader, the omnicompetent leader, then he kind of thought that means you have to do everything. Whereas Hitler and Stalin and others were able to build around them, have around them, essentially loyal followers who were willing to follow and, in the case of Hitler, flesh out and interpret interpret their wishes. Mussolini never really, really had that. He didn't, or certainly didn't cultivate it, despite the fact that around him he seemed to have Many, not completely, but many loyal, loyal figures willing to to support him. What new perspectives are presented in your study regarding Italo Balbo? I think, to be fair, um, there've been a couple of good studies of Italo Balbo. Uh, so, what what I'd say about about him was again a bit like Shiano. He had a great belief in. Mussolini, great faith, which because of his hands-off approach that Mussolini adopted, I mean, he, he dealt with his colleagues in a very formalised way. In fact, Balbo um, is quoted as saying that in later years, Mussolini would have one-to-one -one meetings and speak as if he was addressing a crowd. Um, and I think Balbo really began to resent the way Mussolini treated him, and, and that actually became quite a, a vociferous critic, if in private, of, of Mussolini. He wanted a different sort of relationship. He wanted a more equal, personable relationship, and, and Mussolini was, was not in for it. Um, so I get, as I say, I think similar to Shano, and you could... Add to that list Giuseppe Botti, etc. Um, all these leaders started out with a faith, but by the late 30s, some, in some cases earlier, we're beginning to say our relationship is, isn't, isn't good. But of course, their position within the regime and the benefits it brought, um, such as salary, government positions, um, 
access to fibers, et cetera, et cetera, we're not necessarily going to walk away from it. How did Mussolini become prime minister of Italy in 1922? Can you comment on the March on Rome and Mussolini's seizure of power as it is as these events are recontextualized in your study? The rise of, of, of Mussolini, it, in a sense, it, it's, it's worth going back to what happened before the First World War. The 1900s, the so-called Giolitian era, were quite successful economically. And Giolitti wished to bring about reform, bring the working class into the state, because the state had suffered a lack of legitimacy since unification. However, in that task, partly because of his own limited view of what reform should entail, Giolitti was unable to achieve, achieve that. So going into the First World War, you were beginning to see a sort of political breakdown. The socialists had, had risen, they were a powerful force, but by that time, they were unwilling to enter into accommodations with liberal leaders. Indeed, they were becoming more revolutionary or maximalists, as, as they're called. In fact, interestingly, Mussolini was one of these maximalist leaders within the party. At the same time, that period, 1900 onwards, maybe a bit earlier, had seen the rise of a radical Italian nationalism that was again drawing on anti-enlightenment thinking, was saw the nation as organic, um, became quite imperialist in outlook. So the, what was happening in that period was there was a, a dividing line between radical nationalists, but also conservatives, a sort of nationalist, and socialism, and there wasn't much in the centre, which... Giolitti tried to cultivate, but ultimately couldn't create. That carried on through the war. The nationalists supported the war. The socialists were against the war. There were quite a lot of strikes during the war. Um, the defeat at Caporetto became erroneously attributed to shirkers and, and socialists undermining the uh, Italian army. So Italy came out of the war politically pretty divided between the left and the right, with and both holding two extreme positions. And the post-war period saw that fought out um, and become became quite violent from 1919 to to 1920. There were a couple of what are called the two red years, the Biennale Rosso. Um, factory occupations. But at the same time as there was socialist militancy, people were worried there was going to be a Bolshevik revolution, etc., etc. Um, up grew fascist squads. So from 1919, groups in local areas, squads of armed young men, not many who had fought in the war, but who were directed by officers who'd been in the war started attacking the socialists. In fact, they attacked everybody. They attacked the Catholics, they attacked the liberals as well. 
but their target was the socialists. Partly sponsored in some cases by, particularly in landowning areas, by employers who essentially employed the, the squads as strike breakers. And squad violence grew, became more effective, it was better organised than the socialists, and the socialists were put on the back foot, sorry, the back feet. Um, and by 1921, fascism began to be less just a force, a movement to eradicate political opponents. It became a force to seize power. And gradually, over 1921-22, Mussolini, who was then in charge of what had become the fascist party, and colleagues began to plan for a seizure of power. And there was no secret about that. There was no particular view that it caught people by surprise. It was well organised. It had been organised over several months. And in it, towards the end of October, the fascists, October 1922, the fascists began to take control of local states. They took over local governments. Um, and then in a planned march, that had been put together with, with, with some actually significant planning. But at the same time, the weak Italian government had to respond to this. And the king tried to form a new government under Antonio Salander, who asked Mussolini to join his government. In, it was in October 1922. Mussolini refused. So Salandra suggested the king that he appoint Mussolini as prime minister, which he did on the 29th of October. Mussolini was still in Milan. Some cynics say because if it didn't work out, uh, it was close enough to Switzerland to make an escape. And on the following day, the march in Rome happened. But by then, power had passed to Mussolini Anyhow, the significant factors, I think, to bear in that was, firstly, violence and the existence of the squads were central to Mussolini coming to power. Without the squads, he wouldn't have become prime minister anytime soon. The second thing is that much of what I'll call the Italian establishment, in one form or another, were willing to go along with it. And then we're willing to go along with other changes. Um, the parliament, um, which only had 35 fascist deputies, including Mussolini, then voted through a series of reforms that consolidated the power of the, of the prime minister. And as I've said already, over the following three, three years, the dictatorship was, was established. But there was a problem for Mussolini, which was the squads were pretty unruly. They weren't necessarily entirely welcome, although they might have done a good job for them, but weren't entirely welcome um, in middle-class conservative circles. And therefore, Mussolini had to control them. They also, some of their local leaders, um, were potential rivals to Mussolini at that point. So the controlling the party 
became a, a major aim of, of Mussolini. And again, from that point onwards, the party was kind of demoted and the state was kind of promoted. And Mussolini essentially used the state, including the police, range of state institutions to try and keep the party party in check. And again, that's just going back to one of your other points. That was the difference. There was no party driving any social revolution as there was in, in Nazi Germany. The party was kept under relatively tight control, was largely a bureaucratic and in some ways moribund uh, institution, which many people joined, um, but it was it was a kind of highly regulated organisation which didn't encourage much in the way of political activism. People would parade about and wear uniforms, but beyond that, they wouldn't necessarily do very much. What new gleanings are presented in this book regarding Mussolini's attitudes and policies towards Jews? Yes, the Mussolini had a disposition which was that politics had to some degree have to have others, people to attack, possibly hate. And in the early part of his rule, as he came to power, March of Rome, the socialists and, and to some degree the communists played that role very nicely. He also, very early on, with the newly acquired territories um, in Alte Adige, Trentino, sought to assimilate German and Slav populations that were kind of inherited by Italy uh, as part of the Versailles uh, Agreement, tried to assimilate them uh, and did it in a very repressive way and actually, again, not particularly effective um, way. But the 1938 race law marked a great or a great step up in terms of dealing with others. And there's no doubt, I don't think anybody would dispute that the race laws in Italy were much the same as the laws, the Nuremberg laws in Nazi Germany. But in some ways, they came out of, I won't say nowhere, but they, they were not part of Mussolini's thinking until maybe 37, 38. Indeed, it's difficult to pinpoint. There certainly was anti-Semitism in Italy. A lot of it associated, one's going to say, with the Catholic Church. Mussolini himself was anti-Semitic. But actually, it was not part of his political project. And indeed, in the 30s, he made positive remarks about the Jews and their part in Italian society. He, I think, famously in 1937 said he had no belief in Hitler's or Germany's, Nazi Germany's racist policies. And yet, within whatever it was, 12, 18 months of that, he'd 
implemented, and a lot of it was down to him, implemented these very repressive, discriminatory laws. And the question is, well, why did he do it? And it, it's, it's, it's difficult. The, the common answer is, well, he, he wanted to strengthen the alliance with Nazi Germany, so he, he kind of copied that, um, a sort of mimicking to win credibility. I think that has a certain credibility, um, but I think there were other factors. I think racism with the Ethiopian war had become a bit more part of fascism, I think, interestingly, some Jews, not all Jews, had been prominent critics of fascism and were particularly prominent critics of the Ethiopian war. In addition, I think he had seen in Nazi Germany how the very strong hatred that Nazism embodied of the Jews became a basis for mobilising the population. And... I think Mussolini again thought this this could be mimicked. He was also, to some degree, becoming more caught up in ideas of the West and the threat to the West, writings of Spengler, and the need to protect the West, and began to see Jews, and particularly Jews via Zionism, as not being part of, of the country. So... It, it lacks a certain coherence. It's difficult to sort of say, oh, yes, it all fell into place that way. The interesting thing is that if you are going to use that kind of hate as a, a driving force politically, the Jews in Italy didn't, in one sense, make any sense. There weren't very few Jews. Jews. There were about 47,000 Jews living in Italy which was one-tenth of one percent of the population. There was no strong anti-Semitic movement in Italy. To some degree, as I think I've already said, Jews were reasonably well assimilated and integrated uh, in, into Italy. So, it's, as I say, there's, there's no kind of coherence to what... It, to my mind, it, it was almost just an almost ill-considered um, opportunistic reaction to try and make things happen, um, which unfortunately was very damaging to Italian Jews, who, I've got to say, were very, very surprised, shocked by what happened when the race laws came out. The Jews were not expected. It wasn't the kind of early years of, of Nazi rule where Jews were beginning to leave the country and, and worry for the future. A lot of Jews, when the laws were published, were, were greatly shocked. So it's one of these things that's difficult to explain historically, um, but it doesn't put Mussolini in any particularly uh, good, good light. Um, Who did you write this book for? Who do you consider your ideal reader? your intended addressees and your imagined audience? I think uh, I probably, if I can see this, have maybe had a number of audiences. One of the reasons for writing the book, and therefore my intended audience, or one of my intended audiences, was 
that there remains a lot of mythology surrounding Mussolini. Um, a lot of it actually is just people repeating, and indeed historians, if not so recently in the past, repeating fascist propaganda and, and assuming that the propaganda was the truth of what was going on. Um, so for popularly in, in people's imagination, there's, I think, a lack of clarity, maybe a bit of misunderstanding about Mussolini and what he represented, and indeed, to be honest, what, what the fascist regime was. So what I was trying to do was say, this is what it was really like. This was how it was, and doesn't necessarily accord with what is being said. Um, or has been reported, including one's going to see in some historical uh, accounts by scholars. So there was a kind of, can we put together some some sort of, of, of record? So anybody, so if that's an intended audience, maybe revisiting Mussolini, if you like, rethinking through what he represented. I think I'm also just interested to flag up to readers again how fragile in a sense democracies can be if somebody or some people are intent in taking power uh, for their own purposes. And also just scholars of Italian history, Italian fascism, to add a new perspective. But if you really want an ideal reader, it's somebody who knows a bit about Mussolini and wants to know a bit more, and hopefully will will learn a bit more from that. One individual discussed in your book is Bartolomeo Pagano. Can you yeah. tell us about him? He was an Italian film star, a, a silent film star uh, in the early part of the century. Um, he went under the stage name of Machiste. And in very simple terms, Mussolini, in developing his persona, his public persona, took on many of the mannerisms that Machiste had. He wasn't the only one he copied Douglas Fairbanks Jr. So Mussolini's cult was based on a created persona which drew on many sources, including film stars like Machiste. What new perspectives are presented in this book regarding Arnaldo Mussolini? Actually, to be honest, not a lot, because Arnaldo Mussolini, Mussolini's brother, um, was pivotal to Mussolini. He was the one person he trusted. He was an advisor. Um whom Mussolini paid attention to. Um, but actually, in the histories of fascism, he his his part is, is not widely um, not widely reported. It's not been a, a certainly my understanding, a, a figure of much invest investigation. Largely because I think he he had a sort of semi-private role. He wasn't particularly part of, of, of the regime. Um, although he did some um, important work. Um, 
for for the regime. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book? Two things. Um, my attention, I'm still, for me, there are loose ends in the book. So I think two of the loose ends that are particularly interesting to me, one is what was the real relationship in terms of influence between Mussolini and the wider fascist movement, fascist state. A lot of historians criticize the concentration of Mussolini, which I don't think is true now anyhow, as opposed to fascism. So there's a there's a balancing out to be done there, and I'm, I'm doing a bit of, of work on that. And the other piece of work that I'm doing, which is very separate um, and different, is I'm looking at democracy in Scotland. So I'm now dealing with Italian history and contemporary Scottish politics. Uh, I'm managing just about to keep keep the two in balance. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I'd like to thank you for your generosity in participating in today's dialogue with me. I grew immensely from learning from you and listening to you and would like to wholeheartedly convey my appreciation for your wisdom and your thoughtfulness. Well, Equally, I just thank you for, for your questions. I think you've, you've drawn out some of a range of important um, issues regarding Mussolini. Uh, I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. Um, times you've tested my memory of what I wrote, but, uh, you know, it's, it's just been a good, good discussion. I've enjoyed it. Um, and hopefully you've got what you want. Um, thank you. And those who hear the the podcast will find it interesting and, and benefit from it. Thank it you. My pleasure. Thank you wholeheartedly. As we end today, I'm your host on the new books in history podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today I've been in dialogue with Dr. Peter Williamson. He is an independent researcher. We have been discussing his newly published book, Duce, the contradictions of power, the political leadership of Benito Mussolini published in London by Hearst and Company, 2023. The book is available in North America, published by Oxford University Press. Thank you very much. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.